Okay, now we're recording. Thank you guys for being here. Um, I know last week was a blur. Uh, this week will be as well. Uh, I just want to remind you, um, you know, because of the limitations we have on time, um, there's obviously more here, more material here than we can cover in the class. So part of what uh, my approach has been is to is to try to put as much material in here from as many different uh, sources as I think uh, where they where different sources contribute in different ways uh, to give you uh, as full of a picture of of the, of the of the text and the passages as I can and to put it in a format where you can go back and read this and study through it for yourselves. You can read the text um, to support their arguments and you can kind of get a feel for. Um, you know how how different uh, writers are uh, commenting on the text itself. What I've done is I've tried to put it into kind of a take all of that um, and put it into an or, uh, a logical structure to kind of give you a broad approach to the text. Uh, today's no different. Um, we're going to work on the second commandment, and you know it's the second longest of all the commandments. Um, there's not much of a difference at all between the Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 versions. Um, I want to point out just real quickly, you'll see there on page 1, the, um, the text, we have the primary commandment. Uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. Um, we have a qualifi qualifi qualification there. Then you'll see the little gray box. You'll have a secondary commandment supporting the first. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Um, and then we get the four. There's a reason. It's twofold. Um, there's a warning, um, and then there's a promise. Um, so, just to read through the text real quick, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And that steadfast love there in Hebrew is important. You've heard this word before, chesed. It's covenant love. Um, and this is in the context of the covenant. So structure and argument. Um, just a real quick contrast between the first commandment and the second. Um, you know, we made a point early on to make a distinct to distinguish between the, the traditional reformed uh, approach to the division of the of the law of the Ten Commandments and how that's distinct from, say, the Roman Catholic or the Lutheran, uh, Anglican tradition, uh, the Jewish uh, traditions, etc. We we make a distinction here between the first and the second commandment, um, where others break these commandments up slightly differently, and. Um, and there's a reason. There's reason. There's, there are reasons for that beyond the explicit textual features, the way that the text is broken up, but also can, uh, the way the the concepts are presented throughout the whole of the scriptures. The first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God. Okay, the second commandment has to do with worshiping the right God the right way. Um, you know, with the first commandment, we, gotta re we, we must reject every false god in order to worship the true God. Um, and the second, we may worship him only in the form um, that he prescribes to us in his word. 
if the first commandment forbids us to worship false gods, uh, forbids us to worship the true God falsely. So how we worship matters nearly as much as God is um, whom we worship. We may not worship Him any way we like, but only the way He is commanded. So the first commandment clearly teaches um, Yahweh is the only God and there's no others to be tolerated or even thought of. Uh, and that um, the first commandment commands us to worship only Yahweh, the, the one true God. The second declares the type of God that He is and how He is to be worshipped and uh, commands us to worship Him as He would be worshipped. Um, so we basically have two, pro, two prohibitions, the, the primary prohibition, the secondary prohibition, with supporting texts around them. Uh, we're not to make images to represent God in any form, and we're not to worship any images of any kind. Uh, so the big issue, the primary issue in the text is idolatry. Um, the command begins with the emphatic no. It's low, no. It's specific, it's, it's fronted, it's in the very first thing, it's, it, it's emphatic. He's making, no, you will not. You will not. Um, <clears throat> so, um, the no likeness of any visible object is to be made, nor is anything material to be worshipped. The word for idol, um, basically to hew or hew into shape, it's, a, it's to make a physical representation of something. Um, I want to just take a quick look at Deuteronomy 4, 15-18. It's probably one of the primary texts for this at this point um, to consider uh, where, <clears throat> where, where the issue of idolatry and where it's being forbidden. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. In the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. They saw no form, and God spoke to them. Um, it seems likely, and this uh, kind of uh, interesting, that the idols in view here are not those of the pagan idols around them. The first commandment has already prescribed that away from their worship, right? The representation here, this is talking about representations of idols depicting God, Yahweh. Um, this is how, you know, this is how the surrounding nations kind of depicted their gods. They, they, they make something to represent them. Um, the distinction that's being made here is that, is that we have to be in mind of the distinction between the creator and the creature. I kind of talked about that last week with uh, Van Til. Um, the second commandment does not refer to the worship of alternative gods. And that's, uh, per se, it's being dealt with. That's being dealt with in the first commandment, um, but to the worship of the true God in a false way. And the commandment insists that such representations provoke the Lord to jealousy. It's in, in that jealousy, which uh, must be in His eyes, cannot be <clears throat> involved in alternative objects of worship, giving to others what is due only to Him. The first commandment, though it does not mention love, is concerned with loving loyalty to the Lord. The second man with its references to jealousy raises the topic of his love to us, for jealousy is part of the essence of true love. And the Lord so loves us that he cannot bear it when our desires and loyalties go elsewhere. And I just reflect back on, on Psalm 119 this morning. And, um, and the psalmist, um, 
you know, righteous indignation. Um, so the text itself, I'm gonna, I think one helpful way to look at it is to break it into four parts. The rule, the reason, the warning, and the promise, okay? So the rule was two-part, remember? Primary and a supporting. Um, the rule is very simple. Don't make any idols. There, there are uh, many good reasons for this rule, but the one God specifically mentions is his love, his covenant love. Um, the, and this is the reason for the rule. God forgets it because idolatry, uh, forgets idolatry because of his jealousy. It's another word would be his zeal, okay? His passion, his zeal for his people, for his covenant relationship, his zeal to protect the integrity of his covenant relationship with his people. Um, it's God's jealousy explains why the second commandment ends with a warning, uh, but it also, interestingly, uh, includes a promise of blessing. God shows his zeal to be glorified in our worship by cursing those who break the second commandment and blessing those who keep it. Um, notice in the text, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The phrase, the Lord your God, looks back to the preamble. Remember that? And brings to, to mind all of those statements where uh, God is putting forth his identity as the covenant Lord. He gave him his covenant name, his personal name. That is being brought to play here in these first two commandments. Um, <clears throat> let's look at the warning uh, that the children will be punished for the sins of their fathers. This is kind of unique where we have both threats and blessings in one of the commandments. Um, the warning is repeated elsewhere in the Old Testament. You can see the passages there. It's not a reference to generational curses. It doesn't mean that a righteous child will be punished unfairly for the sins of his father. Those are common misunderstandings. Uh, I think we can see here how Ezekiel uh, makes it clear in Ezekiel 18, 20. He says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. So God does not say to a righteous kid, or hey, tough break, kid. Your, your dad was wicked. I'm going to let you really have it. Um, the book of Ezekiel will not let us take that view of the commandment. So what does the warning mean? The warning is about God's judgment on those who walk in the wicked ways of their parents and, and, and other ancestors. He says he'll visit the iniquity on the fathers of the third and fourth generation. So the children share in the punishment because they share in the father's sins. That's what Ezekiel is saying. Um, if Exodus says you keep on sinning as your father did, you will not escape your father's judgment. You can't say, I'm not only doing what my parents taught me. Uh, the, this is the point of the war. You can't excuse your disobedience by pointing to your upbringing, your culture, or your history. God will punish the next generation uh, if they continue to sin uh, in the sins that they learned from the previous. And that's kind of the point of the warning. Um, but the commandment says something else here a little bit more, and it's really talking about covenant solidarity. Uh, we talk about covenant headship. We're talking about representational, uh, the representational aspect of this. Um, it doesn't deny individual responsibility, but there is a covenant, a family uh, covenantal representative headship issue going there, a federal issue, federal headship issue. Um, the threats to is Israel's relationship with the Lord uh, will not be primarily from other parties, but from the heart, the dispositions of the heart. Um, I'm going to move on here to the promise. God also promises to show mercy to those who love him and keep his commandments. The promises, and this is interesting, the promise is more powerful than the warning because its blessings last not just for three or four generations, but for a thousand years. In other words, for eternity. Okay? Um, 
You think of Paul when he was provoked to anger in Acts 17. Um, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. There's a righteous indignation. We see that in the psalm as well earlier. Um, anyway, think one you might think it Paul to t- you know to tell the philosophers that they're worshiping the wrong gods. He said he even saw a, an idol to a temple of a god, the unknown god, just so they didn't you know had to check all the boxes in case they didn't miss one. But that's not what he said. It was one of the implications of what he said, but it's not where his emphasis was. It was instead his emphasis was on the second commandment. He told them God cannot be worshipped by way of idols. The problem was not simply they were serving the wrong gods, but they were worshipping the wrong God the wrong way, or they were worshipping the wrong way altogether. Uh, and Paul was clarifying the relationship between the creator and the creature. We do not make God. He made us. Um, if God is the creator and giver of life, then he cannot be squeezed into some man-made idol. Uh, and this was Paul's conclusion. Um, he even says this later on in Romans. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. You see that all throughout these texts that we went through the Pentateuch. Um, and beyond um, the issue of the creator-creature distinction. We see it also with the issue of God and exercising his authority on the basis of his being the creator and on the basis of, on the basis of his being the redeemer. So what was the problem with idolatry? The problem was it created a false image, right? It's the, in fact, it's the exact opposite um, of what God really is, Right? Um, God is infinite and invisible. He's omnipotent and omnipresent. He's a living spirit. Therefore, to carve a piece of wood or stone is to deny his attributes, the essential characteristics of his divine being. An idol makes the infinite God finite, makes the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. The idol is not the truth, but a lie. It is a God who cannot know, see, act, or love, or save. Um, so remember, at Sinai, God made himself uh, visible, you know, not through a visible image, although his presence in the fire, but through the word, his audible word. Um, God will not be manipulated. So on, I'm in the middle of page five. Um, Try to keep up. There's two primary functions here uh, of the law in this in this context and the second commandment. First, it distinguished it helped to distinguish the Israelites from their ancient Near Eastern neighbors, um, many of whom who used idols in their religious practices. And second, idols are never only just a visual representation. There's more going on. Um, the consequences are severe for idolatry. Um, and I just quickly want to touch on a few key texts. Uh, the Sinai narrative obviously is huge. Um, there in Deuteronomy 4, where they're re- revisiting, Moses is revisiting the Sinai narrative. Um, he said, The Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound, but saw no form, only a voice. Um, you know, we, we like to, to think, you know, say, Hey, the, the idea of seeing is believing. Well, in biblical terms, or biblical parlance, that's not true. In fact, Scripture puts. Um, the audible over the visual all the time. I think um, um, what do you think of texts like faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen in Hebrews 
11, you think of, Have you believed me because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and believed in John. In Deuteronomy 4, at Sinai, they saw no form. They only heard his voice. Um, move on. The central issue here, uh, and I, I'd encourage you to go back and read these uh, past these these different uh, commentators and how they have uh, addressed the issue. The, the, the central issue over the top of page six. The central issue is the nature of legitimate worship. It turns um, and it turns really on this the, what some have called the self introductory formula, but the statement "I am Yahweh, the Lord your God, the covenant Lord your God." I've listed the text here in Deuteronomy 4, 9 through 20. Um, we're going to talk about, you know, um, the context of the golden calf coming up. Um, but you hear the sounds of the word, you saw no form, there was a voice. You'll see over and over again, you can see in your text how often I've put, I've underlined, and tried to underline and bring to the front um, the divine name there uh, in the reverence to the Lord your God. Uh, and some of the other texts in here that are dealing specifically with this issue. It is throughout um, this whole section of verses 15 and following are all about the, forbid, the forbidding idols and idolatry. Um, and so remember, I'm um, going to move on uh, quickly a little bit here. Um, the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. Um, I thought this was interesting. The prescription is one the Israelites will soon display. I'm on page 7 here. The golden calf at the foot of the mountain. Aaron called the idol Yahweh, the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt. After having been in Egypt for four centuries, the Hebrews would have been affected by the Egyptian religious practice. Now, however, God disallows such polytheistic and pagan worship. The golden calf is probably the most famous example here. Aaron proclaimed a feast to Yahweh. And the people declared that these were the gods who brought them out of Egypt. The Israelites were not worshiping Baal. They were trying to worship the Lord their God, but they were doing it in the wrong way. Uh, look there at the, in the text of Exodus 32. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what, what has become of him. Look, a little bit below, you'll see, it made a golden calf. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And, they, and Aaron made, <coughs> made a proclamation. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, not to Baal, to the Lord. And they rose up the next day and offered burnt, um, burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down and ate and drank and rose up to play. <clears throat> the translation there for Elohim can be gods in the plural, little g gods in the plural, but it can also be uh, a common term for God himself. And I think that's probably a better way to translate it. I think there are several commentators who agree with that. Um, they were trying to worship God. I mean, just look at the context, what they had just come off of. And they made a golden calf because they wanted to have a physical representation. They wanted to control God. They wanted to have something to focus their attention upon. Moses wasn't here, right? He wasn't there with them. And they fashioned this idol because that's what they had grown accustomed to in Egypt. And they wanted a physical representation, a an image uh, that they created of God. And it was wrong for all of these crazy reasons. It's just uh, amazing. Notice 
Um, Aaron did not produce multiple gods, only one golden calf. They thought they could control him, move him about, worship him when and where they pleased. Um, we move on to King Jeroboam in 1 Kings. There's three texts here, King Jer- the issue of King Jeroboam. Uh, this is way later in the history of Israel. He instructed the people in pagan worship. Look down at 1 Kings 12. I'm in the middle of uh, page 8. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. The kingdom had just divided, right? And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin for the people who went as far as Dan uh, to be before one. He also made temples on the high places and appointed priests from all the people who were not of the Levites. And you can't just you can't mess it up any more than that. Okay. In fact, that's one of the it became one of the symbols of the entire apostasy of Israel in the north was this very event. It was iconic. Um, you think of Elijah in the province of Baal later on here in chapter eighteen. You see the insanity of idol worship. And uh, look at the, the context of the voice. But there is no answer. There is no voice. <laughs> and uh, you, you got to love the way Elijah responds to him. I look down the text itself in chapter 18. Call upon the name of your Lord, or the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they called upon the name of Baal, or Baal from morning until noon. Answer us, O Baal. But there is no voice, and no one answered. Um, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Well, either he's uh, musing, or he's relieving himself, or is he on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep. I mean, their god had to be taken care of. What does it say? But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. We even see it in King Jehu a little bit later, right after this, right? We're still dealing with bell worship. King Jehu's pray uh, uh, in the Bible. He's praised for eliminating, eliminating Baal worship from Israel. He also took care of uh, Jezebel. Um, he destroyed the ministers of Baal, and you'll see there in, in chapter ten. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. So far, so good, right? But he refused to wor- he, the, he he refused to worship other gods. Commandment number one. But he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat which he had caused Israel to commit, the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. If he got rid of Baal worship, then what were these sacred cows still doing in Israel? The answer is that although Jehu enforced the first commandment, he allowed his people to break the second. Golden calves did not represent other gods. They were intended to represent the God of Israel. But this is precisely what the second commandment forbade, worshiping God with an idol. Where the first commandment forbid false gods, the second commanded false, uh, was false worship. You'll see the folly of idolatry in Isaiah and Hosea 8. We move over to chapter 10, or over to page 10. You'll see that worship, uh, to worship the idol is to worship what man has made. Um, and I'm just going to make a couple of closing summary sta- uh, statements real quick. Um, this commandment is, considered, is concerning the, the proper manner of worship. Um, it ha- worship has to conform to God's revelation, His character. Uh, all of this is kind of wrapped up in the regulative principle of worship. Um, and we see that in the Westminster Confession of Faith 21. We see it in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question 50 and 51. I'm on page 11 now. Um, there are consequences for this. And it really is because of God's uh, covenant love, His covenant faithfulness. His, he's jealous. 
for his covenant. He's jealous for his people. Uh, he has zeal. Um, and <clears throat> we say, um, what's the danger? Well, the danger is that our th- or worship becomes our theology. There's a, you know, the, there's a formula for this. The right God equals the right worship. Um, I'm going to say just a few things that, uh, it was, that Al Mohler's pointed out. There's a list of lies that idols tell. The idols, are, the idols imply finitude. God's infinite. Idols imply fabrication. God's not made or created. They imply control, human control. That's impossible with God. He's omnipotent. They imply need. God needs nothing. We talk about the aseity of God. He needs nothing. They imply physicality. God is spirit. And they apply the visual. God is unseen. He is heard. And uh, for the sake of time, I won't be able to hit what's probably the most important part here is just going to be the, considering all this in light of the redemptive historical light of Christ. Um, there's only one legitimate likeness of God. We, being, as going back to Genesis, being made in God's image, we, right, are called to be his image bearers, not some piece of thing that we have fabricated to represent his image, right? But there's only one true image of God, the Son, right? Only the Son, and we're called to be transformed into his image so that we, we are the image, not something else that we uh, put in that place. Uh, we ultimately look to Christ, um, we see texts all throughout the New Testament that, that make reference to this. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And there at the very end, I've just got there's, uh, this commentator, Stuart, has made a, uh, a list of things that... Um, reasons why idolatry was so popular. Um, I think it's, it was interesting to see what he had to say. I know that was going fast. Um, I just uh, I would I would encourage you to take the time uh, to read through this, to think through these texts, uh, consider them in their context, how they all work together, um, how different writers have uh, approached this this concept, this topic, and um, and just reflect on it. Um, Mark, would you mind closing us in prayer? trophies that they win back and forth. Israel takes the ark. You know, if we bring the ark with us, God's going to be forced. Um, You know, we studied Matthew, the abomination of desolation. The Roman army brought all of its idols uh, before them and placed them in the temple. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that your word is clear. But sometimes, Father, it is so, it is so clear that it, it just seems overwhelmingly uh, foolish the way that we construct you, the way we put you together. Even at times when we say, I like to think of God this way, or I like to picture him this way. You chose to lead Israel with a cloud and a pillar of fire, things that cannot be controlled. Uh, Lord, will you lead us even today in worship that has no sense of idolatry? Uh, Father, will you lead us to be the 
image bearers. Put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that you um, don't leave us, uh, as your word says. We don't have to climb the highest heights to bring you down or the depths to find you. That you are a God who is near to his people. And you have kept your promises that you will be our God.